let me ask you a question. How was your Valentine's Day? That's weak. Because some of you are like, I forgot, right? Yeah. Valentine's Day was just this last Thursday. If you forgot, it's a good time to make up, right? It's a good time to make up for that. But the reason I ask you that is because we're in this conversation about love. And we talked about this last week. And I need to set the record straight. You guys ready? I need to set the record straight. Because if you were here last week, I shared a story, just kind of made myself vulnerable and transparent. I shared with you about me and my wife, right? 30 years ago this month, uh, I asked my wife to marry me, right? And uh, so I shared that story. And you guys kind of tracked with me. And I just kind of shared some details of that story. And I've been hearing from a lot of you, like more of you than I want to hear from, if I'm just honest, all right? Because a lot of you are telling me this. You're telling me this, that my poem was really lame is what you're telling me, right? Thank you very much, okay? I just need to tell you this. In full disclosure, full disclosure, that was not the poem that I read to my wife, okay? It was much more mushy and romantic, I promise you. You can ask her. But 30 years ago this month, I asked my wife to marry me. And it makes me think about the fact that in our culture, we are obsessed with this whole thing called love. In fact, I threw a couple bumper stickers up here. and You might see these along the road. Love is all you need, right? Love is the answer. And we talked about how the fact that our culture is obsessed with this. We have songs about love. We have movies about love. We have dating sites where you can find somebody to share your love with. We are obsessed with love. In fact, we asked this question last week, if you were here by way of review, we said, maybe Tina Turner's question was a good question. What in the world does love have to do with it, right? And we said that when you look at the story of God, you realize that love has an awful lot to do with it. In fact, in fact, we said this, there was an occasion where Jesus was asked to boil the Bible down. And when he boiled the Bible down, he boiled it down to love. Here's what he said. Somebody came to him and said, hey, what's the greatest commandment? How would you boil this whole thing down? And he said, here's how I would boil it down. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. And he said, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two. He's literally saying this, the Bible hangs on love. Love God, love others. Beyond that, we said, if you look at the story of Jesus, right? Jesus was hanging out with his followers, and right before they're getting ready to crucify him, he says, I'm going to boil the Christian life down for you. I'm going to boil this whole thing of following Jesus down. In John 13, he said to his followers, a new command I'm giving you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Here's our word, if you love one another. Take it a step further, the same guy writing this said, hey, I just will boil God down. I'll boil this whole thing down in 1 John. And here's what he says. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, everybody stay with me on this. If you've never seen this in the Bible, this next statement is power-packed. Whoever does not love does not know God. Why would you say that? Well, because God is love. He doesn't say this. He doesn't say God loves. He says God is love. It turns out that love has a lot to do with it. Love has everything to do with it. Love is all we need. Love is the answer, as it turns out, when you look at the story of God, which makes this whole conversation confusing. Because the truth of the matter is love is evasive, it's elusive, and it's confusing. And many of us in the room, if we're honest, many of us would be like, I wouldn't even know what love was if it showed up. 
And the reason for that is, is there's many definitions and ideas and descriptions that come along with this idea of love. And we get confused as to what in the world love is in the first place. It reminds me of something that somebody sent to me just this last week. They did a little study, and they took a group of professional people, and they posed this question to a group of four to eight-year-olds. You want the truth, ask kids, right? Can I get an amen on that? Ask kids. And here's the question they asked them. They said, what does love mean? I love their answers. Carrie's age five, and she said this. She said, love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> That's where we're right now. Chrissy, age six, says, love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. That's love, right? Billy, age four, says, when somebody loves you, they, the, the way they say your name is just different. You just know, I love this little statement, you just know that your name is safe in their mouth, is what he says. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, so, oh, I know, it's cool, right? Noel, age seven, says, love, <laughs> love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, and then he wears it every day from that day on. <laughs> There's some truth to that, I'm going to tell you. Tommy, age six, love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. I love it, right? Danny, age seven, says this, love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy, and then she takes a sip before giving it to him just to make sure it tastes okay. Emily, age eight, said this, love is when you kiss all the time. Woo! Somebody said, I'm not done. <laughs> love is when you kiss all the time. Then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together and talk even more. My mommy and daddy are like that. But they look gross when they kiss, is what she said. I love it. <laughs> Bobby, age seven, says, love is what's in the room with you at Christmas. If you stop opening presents and just listen. That's kind of profound. Rebecca, age eight, said this. Love, that's when my grandmother, who has arthritis, can't bend over anymore to paint her toenails. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even though he has arthritis in his hands. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. You see, here's the deal. Love can be a confusing thing. Here's why. We talked about this last week, and you already know this. We have one word to describe many different things. Here's what I mean by that. It's like, I love God. I love my wife. I actually love my family. I love you. I love this church. I love pizza and Penn State football. I love, and we have one word to describe all those ideas, all those understandings. And so somehow in our mind, it gets confused because hopefully my love for my wife is something different than my love for pizza. And so that's where the understanding of love helps us when you drive it back in to a language called Greek. You can forget that, but in Greek, which is what the second part of your Bible was written in, the New Testament, there are many different words for love, four main words for love. We looked at them last week. There's the word storge. That simply means this affection, this admiration that we would have for each other, family members would have for each other. There's this word eros, and you can almost guess what that means, right? It's where we get the word erotic. It's a sexual kind of love. It's a romantic love. Then there's the word phileo. That's this brotherly love. It's something that goes deeper than a friendship. It's like, I'm going to go with you. and Come hell or high water, I'm with you. It's phileo. But when the Bible, I want you to get this, when the Bible talks about love, the majority of time it's talking about a roll up your sleeves, put on your work pants kind of love. And when it talks about love, it's talking about agape love. 
And agape love is simply this. Here's what it is. This is worth writing down. Agape love, the definition we gave to it was this. It is a commitment, keyword, a commitment, keyword, commitment that ascribes self-worth to someone else even at cost to myself. It is ascribing self-worth to someone else even when it costs me. That agape love is not just this flimsy feeling. Agape love is not simply this emotion, but it is a commitment, a decision to ascribe worth to someone else even when it costs me, which is why you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 13, because 1 Corinthians 13 is a chapter in the Bible all about love, and it's not placed in the Bible so that you could read it at your weddings, although that's cool if you did, right? But that's not why it was written. It was written by a real guy to real people. A real guy whose name is Paul wrote it to a real church. This church happened to be in Corinth. And this church was busy and bustling and he planted it, yet it had problems. And so 1 Corinthians is a letter to a church about all of its problems. And its main problem was that they didn't have this ingredient called love. And so that's why he wrote 1 Corinthians 13. And that's why he said this, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels but don't have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You say, what does that mean? Here's what Paul's saying. Let me put it in lingo. You might understand. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I might be the most eloquent man on the planet. I might sing like an angel, but if I don't have love, I'm just making noise. That's what he's saying. He goes on, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but don't have love, I'm nothing. What's he saying? He's saying, I might in the room be the guy who knows more about the Bible than anybody else. That I might be the person or the, the, the gal that everybody comes to when they have questions about the Bible. I might be able to connect all the dots. I might be able to answer all your questions. I might be able to draw out charts to tell you exactly how the end times are going to be and all that kind of stuff. But if I don't have love, nothing. Then he goes on. He said, if I give all I possess to the poor, like I'm the most generous person in the room, like, like I've given away more than anyone else. And even if I give my body over to hardship that I may boast, like I'm the most devoted person in the room but I don't have love, I gain nothing. It's like with one fell swoop, Paul's like, hey, love does have a lot to do with it. Because I could be really, really religious, really, really moral, really, really devoted. I could be really, really eloquent. People could be really, really impressed with me. I can inspire lots of people who don't have love, nothing. Which led Paul then to say, well, if love is what matters and makes life meaningful, that's what we said last week, then I better know what that love looks like. I better understand what in the world does love look like? This love that Paul's talking about, this love that God wants us to have for each other. And so that's what the next several verses are all about. And we just took a look at one phrase last week because Paul says love is patient, love is kind. And if you were here last week, here's what we said. Here's, here's all that means, that love involves give and take. That, that when I understand this idea of love, it involves give and take. It's patient and it's kind. And we said that this description, stay with me on this, this description of love in 1 Corinthians 13 will never help us till it crushes us. I'm going to say it again. It's not this feel-good poem that we read at weddings, like, oh, you know, it just sounds so great. That's not what 1 Corinthians 13 is. It will never help us till it crushes us. And last week, I've heard from many of you about last week, and last week was crushing before it could help us, right? Because patient and kind simply means this, love will take a lot before it'll boil over, Right? 
Love takes a lot without boiling over, but it doesn't just take a lot. Love gives itself away without needing to be repaid or recognized. That was hard for a lot of us. That's what it means to be patient and kind. And we said this, that I'll never understand that kind of love until I receive that kind of love, that this kind of love is actually a response to receiving that kind of love from God. Love is patient. Love is kind, which leads us to today. For a few brief moments, I want to look at the next little phrase in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says this, love, it, love, does not envy. In some of your Bibles, it says love isn't jealous, right? Love doesn't boast. Love is not proud. Love doesn't dishonor others. Some of you in your Bibles, it says isn't rude to others. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. To understand what Paul is trying to do here, you got to understand that the hinge to this little phrase, there is a hinge to this that will help the rest of it make sense. And that hinge is right in the middle. The hinge is this. He wants us to know that love is not proud. What is Paul saying? I want you to write it down somewhere like this. Love is not full of itself. That's what he's saying. That love is not full of itself. And why does he say that? Because my ego, listen close, Your ego, my ego, is the thing that can get in the way of me loving others. You're saying, Dan, help me understand that. I'd be happy to, but you need to go in the deep end and pop back out with me. You need to do this with me to make 1 Corinthians 13 pop because there's something powerful, profound. It's actually invasive that he says here. When Paul says love is not proud, you with me? When Paul says love is not proud, he uses a word, and he is the only one in the New Testament that uses it. He uses a Greek word, that's what the New Testament was written in, and he is the only one that uses it, and this is the only place that he uses it, in the book of 1 Corinthians, except for one other time in the book of Colossians. You can forget the word, but the word, just so you know there's a word attached to what I'm saying, is the word physio. That's the Greek word. You can impress your friends with that or whatever, but... but That word that he uses is unique to Paul, unique to this situation, because I think it's unique to what he wants to tell us about our egos. That word physio, here's what it means. It means to be extended. It means to be swollen. It it means to be bloated. Let me put it this way. When that word is used, it's used to refer to bellows, so to speak. The majority of times that word would be used, it would be used to refer to, okay, I'm not making this up, it's very graphic, to an organ in your body that would be extended with air, that it would be swollen, that it would be bloated, that it would be empty, bloated, and painful. What Paul is saying is this, is that my ego gets inflated, it gets swollen, it gets puffed up, and that is pride. And so when Paul begins to say, love is not proud, he wants us to understand something about our egos. What does he want us to understand about our egos? Several things I want you to write down. I want you to write this down. First, he wants us, the reason he uses this word is he wants us to know my ego is empty. That's the word physio. It's swollen. It's bloated. And because it's empty, I'm always looking to fill what's empty up. What Paul wants us to see is the reason we struggle with pride is all of us have egos that are empty, and so we're looking to fill those egos up. 
We're looking to fill those egos up with meaning, with worth, with purpose, with identity, anything we can do to fill our ego up. The problem is this. The problem Paul wants us to know is this, is that many of us, if we're honest, we fill that that emptiness up inside of us with everything other than God many times. In fact, there's a guy whose name is Soren Kierkegaard who said this. He said, it's the normal state of the human heart to try to build its identity and worth around something besides God. So here's what happens. When we fill this emptiness inside of us, we try to fill it because I need to be worthwhile. I need to have purpose. I need to be special. I need. And what happens is because I need to fill it with stuff, I become self-seeking, which makes what Paul said pop. He said, love is not what? Say it out loud with me. Self-seeking. Why in the world would love be self-seeking? Because I got something empty inside of me. I need anything, everything I can find to try to fill what's empty inside of me. I need stuff to validate me. I need stuff to give me worth. I need stuff to fill me. I need stuff to identify me. And we look for all kinds of stuff. You look for stuff. I look for stuff. For some of us, it's our looks, right? It's like I want to be known for my looks, and so I'm going to do everything I can to just have the perfect body and the perfect whatever and whatever. So when I walk in there, it's like, boom, there is the person who is, boom, they look like a 10 every time. For some of us, it's our athleticism. Like, I'm going to be the best athlete in the field. Man. I'm going to make sure that I'm, nobody can take me. I'm the strongest guy in the gym, whatever it might be. For others of us, it's our intellect. I'm going to fill that, that empty spot I'm going to be the smartest person in my friend group. I'm going to be that person who got the highest score in my ACT. And there's nothing wrong with a goal that, but I, that's what's going to give me my worth. For others of us, it's success. It's money. For some of us, we fill that empty space with kids. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And it's our kids that somehow fill that. Here's what happens. Stay with me. It's going to pop in a second. When I look to fill what's empty and inflated inside of me, myself, it leads to two things, which leads Paul to say, love is not jealous and love does not boast. What's he saying? He's saying, I fill my empty ego by comparing myself with others. You see, why in the world would Paul say that? Paul's not just coming up with some things so that we can have this nice poem in the middle of the Bible. He's saying, this is real. All of us struggle with physio. We have this empty ego, and we're trying to fill it. And what happens as we try to fill it with all this stuff, it causes us to compare ourselves with others. And when we compare ourselves with others, it leads to jealousy and boasting. See, Paul isn't messing around, is he? He knows us. And when he says love is not jealous and love does not boast, he uses two fascinating words. The word for jealousy, you can write this down if you want to impress your friends, but here it is, is the word zeal. It it literally means this, zeal gone wild. It means I'm jealous, I envy, I covet. Here's what jealousy is all about. Jealousy has two paths it'll walk down. They're very related. Jealousy looks at you and you have something that I don't have. And I don't like the fact that you have what I don't have and I want to have it. And so therefore, I'm not happy that you have it. Or jealousy, on the other hand, will look at you and you have something that I don't have that I want to have. Stay with me. 
And I sure wish you'd lose it. Jealousy, when it shows up in my life because my my ego is empty and I'm trying to fill it, jealousy cannot stand it when somebody else is in the spotlight. Jealousy cannot stand it when somebody else gets recognized. Jealousy cannot stand it when people are clapping for others. Jealousy cannot stand it when someone else's kids get recognized Mine didn't. See, 1 Corinthians 13 is more than just this flowery poem. He's like, love is not jealous, but he doesn't stop there. He says, it's not just that love is not jealous, but love doesn't boast. And he uses this really big Greek word that this is the only place he uses it. And you can forget that, but it literally means this. Here's what it means. Love does not parade its accomplishments. Love is not constantly recommending itself to other people. You ever been around somebody like that? Don't look at them. Where they're constantly recommending themselves, where they're constantly parading their accomplishments, where they're constantly wanting people to be impressed with what they've done, who they are, where they're constantly telling you about what their kids have achieved. You see, what he's saying is love is not jealous. Love is and does not boast. Here's how I think about it. Jealousy can't stand it when somebody else has what I wish I had. Boasting can't shut up about what I am or what I have because I want others to have it. I want them to be jealous of what I have. Here's what happens when jealousy shows up. When when, when I'm somebody who struggles with jealousy, you know what I do? I shoot holes in other people's accomplishments. Tracking with me? Let's just find it in ourselves. Don't, don't look around. Just look for it in you, man. It's, there's enough in here. Jealousy will shoot. Here's, here's how it works. Somebody else's kid gets recognized or honored. Well, they had a leg up. They know so-and-so. God, I know how politics work. Somebody else gets the promotion at work. Well, you know, they're kind of really tight with the supervisor. That's the only way they got it. You see, jealousy will shoot Holes in whatever the accomplishment is, whatever it is, instead of clapping for them. On the other hand, boasting. Boasting, when it shows up, it's always presenting its resume. It's always somehow recommending itself, and it's not afraid to pat its resume. The point is this. Paul wants you to know this, that my ego is empty, and it's always looking to be filled. And the way I fill it many times is I I begin to fill it in a self-seeking way, which causes me to compare myself with others, and it causes him to say, love is not jealous. Love does not boast. And the truth is, he's wanting us to look inside of ourselves because this chapter will never help us till it crushes us. And he wants us to see that our ego is empty and always looking to fill, and we end up comparing and listen close, and because it's empty, always looking to be filled, but never quite filled, ready? Our egos, ready, are not just empty, but our egos are hurting. And because they're hurting, their voice is the loudest voice in our life. You know why? Because the fact of the matter is, is that when something hurts, that's all I can think about. You already know that, right? Just think about it. Like, when something on your body hurts, that's what you think about. I have something called gout. Anybody know what that is? I have gout. Raise your hand. Not very many. 
Okay, here's what gout is. Okay, I'm not going to give you the details of how I got it, but when a gout flare-up shows up in my life, it feels like somebody took a hammer to my big toe. That's what it feels like, literally. I met a guy first service. He said, I got gout. That's what it feels like. Trust me, that's what it feels like. When I have a gout attack, that's all I can think about. Right now, and I'm not thinking about my big toe. When I have a gout attack, guess what? All I can think about is my toe, my toe, my toe. I might have a conversation with you. I might be preaching a sermon. All I can think about is my toe. Why? Because my toe is what is hurting. Stay with me on this because it helps me understand the ego. My hurting ego is always, always drawing attention to itself. Because my ego is hurting, it's always, always, always drawing attention to itself. And this will help some of us in the room understand ourselves. Because our ego is hurting, it's always screaming to us. It's why some of us in the room always feel like we're the ones being mistreated, always feel like we're the ones being ignored, always feel like we're the ones being overlooked, always feel like we're the ones being snubbed, always feel like we're the ones being mishandled because there's something that is hurting. And we cannot walk into any room where we're not thinking about me, 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 and what hurts inside of me. That's why some of us in the room... Some of us in the room walk into a room and the only thing we can think about is, I wonder what they think of me. I wonder if I've made a good impression. I wonder if they like me. I wonder if I look good. Paul is saying simply that our egos are inflated. It's constantly calling attention to me. That's why every event, every experience, every environment that I go into somehow is connected with me, how I look. Did I make an impression? Here's what's interesting. It's because I have an ego that's hurting, always drawing attention to itself. And you know what hurting people do? I saw somebody mouth it right here. They hurt people, which is why Paul says this. Love is not what? Rude. Love does not dishonor others. Love will not purposefully hurt others. So here's what's happened. My ego's hurting. It's always drawing attention to itself. And because my ego is hurting, it helps me understand something inside of me. Because my ego is empty, because it is hurting, it is easily bruised. It's easily bruised, which is why Paul says what he says. He says, love is not easily what? Say it out loud. Angered. You need to know something about anger. Some of you live with angry people. I'm going to tell you something about anger. I meet with lots of angry men. I'm going to tell you something about anger. Anger is very rarely the problem. Anger is very rarely the problem. Anger is always a symptom of hurt. Somehow there's hurt that shows up in anger. The majority of times, I, I mean, angry men, angry women, and anger shows up when there is a deep hurt. And what is it that causes me to be angry? The thing that causes me to be angry is because I got this inflated ego that keeps getting hurt. People devalue the things I'm filling my life with. People step on it. They, they somehow minimize it. Somehow people are getting ahead of me, and it hurts me, and it makes me angry. Several years ago, I shared an interview that I thought was interesting. I think a person 
who is probably more self-aware than many of us in this room, did an interview. It's interesting. The great theologian Madonna was interviewed, and I think she capsulizes what's going on here. Madonna said, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. My fear of being mediocre is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it, and I discover myself to be a special human being, but then I somehow feel like I'm mediocre again, uninteresting, unless I do something else to prove to everybody I'm special again. Because even though I become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. And then she says this, my struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. I think she's extremely self-aware. Like, if you hear me read that, like, oh, that old Madonna, you know, you're missing it. Like, I I think she's self-aware that my empty, hurting, always drawing attention to itself ego is always needing to somehow pad its resume. And that's why Paul says love is not physio, it's not proud. Because our egos become prisons that confine us or they become dynamite that explode with inside of us. That's what happens with our egos. And so Paul says, love is not proud. Maybe another way to say it is this, love is self-forgetful. That is the opposite of physio. That is the opposite of proud, which makes 1 Corinthians 13 read different to me. Listen to how it reads. You ready? Love does not envy. Instead, love is free to celebrate success in other people. Love is free to clap for others. Love does not boast. Instead, it is free to recommend others, to build others up. Love is not proud, yet humility frees love up to think less of me so that I can think more of you. Love does not dishonor others, is not rude to others, Instead, love is free to be polite to others, even prefer others honoring them. Love is not self-seeking, but love is free to put others first. Love is not easily angered, but love is free because love doesn't have to keep proving itself over and over and over again so that it easily becomes hurt. Love is not physio. Kind of leads to a question, and then I'm done. Because I can see it in some of your faces, and the truth is that that lands heavy. Like, if, if you're being honest this morning, you're being honest, that lands heavy. And, and the question at least is, like, how do I love like that? And if you walk out of here and you say, I'm going to just start loving like that and check it off and I'm going to work really hard, you will fail. You will be disenfranchised. You will give up. Because Paul did not write 1 Corinthians 13 to be a checklist that we perform. Instead, he wrote it so there would be a person that we would meet. And you will never be able to extend that kind of love until you experience that kind of love. And you'll only experience that kind of love in a story called the gospel through a person named Jesus.
In fact, I said this last week, and it's worth writing down this week. This kind of love is a response to receiving this kind of love from God. And we have a God who is self-emptying. That the story of God is about God emptying himself to express his love for you. And for some of you in the room, you need to hear that today. In fact, Philippians 2 says, I don't want you doing anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, I want you to value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus. Look at this. Who being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Literally, he emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here's the deal. The story of Jesus is about Jesus deciding to empty himself of everything he could have claimed and boasted for in order that I could have what I could never achieve or work for on my own. The story of the gospel is the story of a God who loves you so much that he emptied himself, that he became a servant so you could become a son, that he died so that you could live, that he took what you deserve so that you could have what you don't deserve. He emptied himself so that we could be free and so that we could be filled. And the only thing that will ever fill that empty ego that you are feeling this morning is when you say yes to Jesus and realize the verdict that matters most is the verdict you receive from him. And the only way you'll ever love others like that is through the lens of the cross. Because it's only when I experience that kind of love that I'm free to love others that way. It's only when I allow that kind of love to crash in on my life that I have any power to begin loving others in a way that 1 Corinthians 13 talks about. You're saying, why in the world, why in the world are you taking us there, Dan? Because some of you in the room have never said yes to God's love found in Jesus. And this might be the very first time you've ever heard that God loves you so much that he emptied himself, took the form of a servant, became obedient to death. Why? So that he could die in your place, in my place for our sin. He's crazy about you. He died to have a relationship with you. This morning, you can say yes to Jesus, and you can receive the freedom that comes from that love, free from my sin, and the filling that comes from that love. I now am a child of God, born into the family of God. There are some of you in the room, you've been going to church a long time, and I I feel I want to just talk to you. been going to church a long time. My heart, my heart actually is heavy for unsaved church people. I just want to talk to you a second. You've been going to church and you look good on the outside and the way that you would listen to a sermon like this, like I'm going to go out and I'm going to love better than the guy beside me. See how that works? All of a sudden, I find love doesn't compare itself to others. In 
For some of you, you've gone to church, you have this great moral code, but you've never humbled yourself and said, I want to receive what God offers to me that I cannot do for myself. Say yes to Jesus. There's some of you in the room, you've said yes to Jesus, and, and I know some of your stories, and you right now are living with somebody, whether it's a friend, a coworker, and they're hard to love. And some of you have talked to me. You talked to me after last week, like, how am I going to love? And I'm going to, and the only answer, the only way I know to encourage you, and then I'm done, I'm going to pray, we're dismissed, is not to leave here and say, go try harder to love them. That, listen, if the challenge to love the person in your life might be your spouse, might be your kids, it might be your neighbor, it might be your boss, I don't know who it is, I've talked to a lot of you. If the challenge to love somebody that's hard to love is going to do anything in your life, let it do this. Let it drive you deeper into your understanding of how much Jesus loves you. If you leave here and say, I'm just going to knuckle down and love my wife better, and I'm going to do that at some point, at some point that will lead to a disappointment and a resentment. But if the challenge to love your husband or your child drives you into Jesus where you understand a little deeper how much you're loved by God, all of a sudden, that love that fills and frees begins to extend to the people that are close to us. So God, we need help to understand how incredibly, unbelievably, unimaginably loved by you we are. Some of you may be sitting here this morning, and I just want to take this minute, and you've never said yes to Jesus like these four individuals this morning who were baptized did, and this morning right there in your seat, right this moment, you don't need to say it out loud, you can have a conversation with God. God, I believe you love me. God, I believe I'm a sinner. And I believe that when Jesus died, he died for me in my place so that I could be free from my sins and so that I could be filled to live for you. And this morning, I want to say yes to Jesus as my Savior and leader of my life. And if you had that conversation in this moment, I'd love to hear from you somehow. Email, welcome card. Somehow, I'd love to hear from you. Some of you are sitting here this morning, and you've said yes to Jesus, and I want you right now to think of that person, right now to think of that person in your life that's hard to love. Right now, I want you to think about them. And I want you to simply have a conversation with God, something like this. God, would you help me to love them by allowing this to drive me deeper into understanding how much I'm loved by you? And would you allow that love to spill out of my life into their life, even if they're really hard to love? God, I pray that we would experience the freedom and the filling that comes from living life underneath the waterfall of your love. I pray this in Jesus' name.